time now for another episode of Pats from the Past podcast. Matt Smith along with Brian Worry. And pleased to be joined today by former Patriots coach Dante Skarnecchia. Dante, how are you doing today? Doing really well, Matt. Thanks for asking. Oh, great. Listen, let's uh, fill fans in now. Um, what are you up to these days? There's 24 hours in a day. You probably were working 28 when you used to work. So how are you filling your days now and enjoying retirement? I, or I hope enjoying retirement. I am enjoying, enjoying retirement, and our days are very full. Um, like we were talking about before, you know, we have grandkids that live with us half the time, and we're doing a lot of virtual schoolwork with them. And, um, you know, there's a lot going on in our lives relative to all that. And so we've been busy. So, so what's tougher, uh, helping your grandkids in the fifth or sixth grade with virtual learning or uh, teaching offensive linemen blocking schemes? I think the new math is a lot tougher than teaching those blocking schemes. There's been many a time where I've had to go on the YouTube tutorials on how to add, subtract, and divide uh, fractions. That's something I kind of left in my uh, earlier days, but it's been a process and I've enjoyed every second of it. You know, Dante, you mentioned something earlier and, you know, we've, we as a, as a nation or a society, we, we sen- sometimes tend to um, put the spotlight on the negative, but um, as you're seeing it, trying to teach your grandkids and, and try to ha- create some sort of normalcy, the resiliency of people. Is that maybe a silver lining here to look at this thing as, okay, yeah, we've been dealt kind of a tough hand here. How do we work our way through it? And you seem encouraged by the resiliency that maybe the human spirit is trying to show through all this. Is that fair? I think it's really fair. And I think it not only does it transcends, transcend what happens in our own house with our grandkids, but, you know, because I'm not working, I mean, I get out there uh, on my bike a lot to exercise. And my wife walks five to seven miles a day. And you take a look around and you see a lot of people doing the same thing. And um, our grandkids are, are better on the computers than they've ever been. They type, they've learned to type. Their skills at that are so much better. And hey, look, at, we're, we're blessed in a lot of ways uh, because you know our, our grandkids are able to have their own computer and be able to do the things that they need to do. But I also think this, I, I know I've heard a lot of people talk about lost generations and how this is going to impact kids in the future. And I'm not buying any of it. I think that I think they're they're more inclined to move into the technological ages that that they're that they've been saddled with going uh, forward. And I I think they're going to be better for the process. And you know I, I know this that I, I we have them around all the time and we've been blessed to be around them all the time. And, Hopefully they're getting some things from us in the process. Yeah, I think it's been, um, you know, the, the silver lining in all this, and I said this back in the spring, was especially in the spring when we, we didn't know as much. And we really were more quarantined, I think, at that point. And the silver lining was dinner with my teenagers every single night. You know, yeah. like now, you know, they're out doing their thing still a little bit and, you know, back to work. Uh, they have jobs and whatnot, and so it's it's challenging. But but it was nice to have those dinners every night at home with the kids. Yep, yep. And a lot of other things, you know. We play board games. We, 
um, watch movies together and stuff like that. I, you know, hey, I'm not, I, hey, I just finished a, a 5,000 piece Lego project with my grandson. Holy wow. smoke. And I, it 5, was, pieces. Is, it, is it Gillette Stadium? <laughs> uh, no, it's a Death Star from Star Wars. Oh, my God. I will but say this. Great. In talking to some of your former colleagues, Dante, I know that uh, that they said that that was a silver lining. You know, you were so conditioned in this industry that it's 28 hours a day, eight days a week, and you're grinding the whole time. But the fact that they could step back a little bit and work hard, but maybe do it at home and still have dinner with their families. That was a silver lining. You know, I'm sure you had those conversations with some of the people that you used to work with, you know? I haven't had any conversations with them, but I, I can't imagine that what you say is not true and how much, you know, how good they felt about being home so much in the spring and even to a degree home a little earlier because, uh, you know, the building's closed. Yeah. All they can do is go in there and and they have all day to work for two days, and maybe they get home a little earlier. So I think all those things are good. My words here, Dante, I think Patriot fans should look at Dante Scarnecchia as a, uh, a local treasure for what you accomplished here in your football career. And so I want to kick it off by saying, do we have Ron Meyer? Do Patriot fans, should we thank the late, great Ron Meyer uh, for bringing Dante Scarnecchia to New England? Yeah, I mean, he, he brought six of us up here from – uh, SMU and, and uh, for whatever reason he asked if I would come along and and yeah I, 1982 you know that's when we all came up here and yet you were able to coach under six different Patriots head coaches Ron Meyer Raymond Berry Dick McPherson coach Parcells Pete Carroll and then Bill Belichick that that seems incredibly well obviously it's rare why were you able to stay through all those coaching changes? I, I have no answer for that. You know, I, uh, it just seemed like it when the changes were made, you know, we were asked to stay and, and we uh, chose to stay. We, we, you know, we, I, don't, I, I eliminated that theory about the grass is greener a long time ago. And I, uh, I was, I had a great resolve. I moved one time when we were here and I quickly learned that that wasn't the right thing to do. So, <laughs> but at any rate, I, you know, I, we cherished our time here. We've been here a long time and we're not going anywhere. Well, so coach, we've watched you on the practice field over the years and you definitely have an intensity about you. Um, did your personality fit with certain head coaches here? better than others like how does that work when you have you know you go from a, a bill parcells to a pete carroll kind of situation i think that um they would be better inclined to answer that question than myself and i think that you can only be yourself out there and try not to be like anyone else and and if that if if, if that meshes well with uh with the people that you're coaching or the people that you're working for, then great. And if, but if it doesn't, then they have the choice, you know, ultimately to eliminate you and move on. And um, I, I just, I think that a lot of coaches get in trouble by trying to be something that they're not and try to emulate people that they're not. So I've chosen to be myself and, uh, and I've never regretted it one time. Do you think Dante, maybe that, 
that that became apparent to those that you were working with pretty quickly and and like teaching coaching is a very selfless act you know you have to give of yourself to so many people and the best teachers and the best coaches only care about making students and players in your case better at the end of the day are you better today than you were yesterday and that's your job and do you think maybe people figured out that that's really what Dante wants to do regardless of where he is in the field I think the most important thing for me was what I quickly learned when I came into the NFL was that players wanted to be taught how to do their job better and and do it as good as they could do it. And if they did that, then they would achieve the two things that they are all after when they come into this league, and that's money and longevity. So if you could convince them that you you had their best interests at heart and selfishly, I, I knew that if, if the people that I was fortunate enough to coach could play to the highest levels possible, then we would have a better chance as a team holding up our end of it to succeed. So having said that, you know, I, to me, it was easy. You know, be yourself, coach them hard, coach them as good as you can coach them, convince them that you have their best interests at heart, tell them when it's bad, tell them when it's good, and, um, and you know, don't, you know, don't waffle on anything, man. Be upfront on everything. I, I, that's, you know, that's my philosophy, and I think, I hope it served me well. Was that hard, Dante? Is it, um, you know, you get a new group of people pretty much every single year, and is it hard to identify, hey, you know what? I know he wants to get better and he's going to listen versus the guy next to him who, you know what, I don't know if I can get through to this guy because I don't know if he's aligned with what we want to do or if he does actually want to get better. Is it hard to identify those or, or is, it, is it easy? I think uh, to, the, to that question, I would answer it this way. I was going to be who I was going to be. And fortunately, you know, we had players all along the way. And they weren't there the whole time, obviously, but all along the way that had been in the same meetings and heard the same approach over a long period of time and and were on the practice field. And everybody knew that, you know, there were no sacred cows in the meeting and no sacred cows on the practice field. And if you weren't doing things the way we wanted them done, you got called out for it. And the same thing was true in the meeting. If you were a guy that was prone to nod off you know, that wasn't gonna that wasn't gonna go very well. <laughs> and and the best thing for me personally was we were able to have a lot of guys who culturally understood what was going on, and and they more than certainly me would, especially if it was a, during a hard time where, you know, I was going off on somebody, they would take them aside and say, look, it, we all heard this before, and he's done it to us before. And he's doing it because he's trying to make you better. So it's not personal. And I would always tell him that. Hey, look, it, I may not like you much today, but I'll like you later on. <laughs> and this isn't personal. You know, I, I have a choice. I can let it go and you'll be lousy or I can do something about it. And maybe you got a chance to be better. You just made me think of something. So when Greg Robinson Randall was here and he started at right tackle for the first Super Bowl championship team, a year later, he was out of the lineup. And I remember asking him, you know, about that as a reporter back then. And he, he kind of, 
claimed ignorance as to he didn't know why he wasn't playing. And I walked away thinking, oh, he knows. Like, he's got to know. Like, either a coach has said something to him or he can watch the tape and know. And so how difficult can that be, Dante, when you – when, when you have a guy like that, and, and you know, maybe maybe there's different ways to try to reach that player. Maybe sometimes it's getting in his face. Maybe sometimes it's not doing that. How do you balance that approach with with certain players? Um, I, I think that, again, it goes back to everyone's got to be treated, in my estimation, the same. You know, I've, I've heard that before where you don't, you know, some players don't need to be you know, you have to give some player, players some leeway. And I, I, would, I would hope that the, when the players that I've been fortunate enough to coach would, would say the same thing, hey, look, he treated us all the same, you know, and no one got a break. And the guys that got the break were the guys that just did it right all the time. I mean, I didn't have to tell them to go harder. I didn't have to tell them to hold the bags better for, you know, on the service team. I didn't have to tell them to study more. And if they just did the right things, you know, it was they didn't hear a whole lot. But those that didn't, you know, that weren't doing it the way we wanted them to do, I'm sure it wasn't very a whole lot of fun. You mentioned something a, a second ago, Dante, and you used the word culture. And um, the league is in this period right now, hideous, where you know so many guys are gone, staffs are being filled, guys are coming and going left and right. Um, you know, I don't want to underestimate uh, the importance of X's and O's and, and how to do different things to beat your opponent or a particular player or anything like that. But how important is it to develop that culture um, in order to try to have as much success as you can have? It's a lot easier than if you don't have that culture. And look at when you can just focus in on focus in on doing the things to be the best football team that you can be, as opposed to you got to put this brush fire out because this guy's not doing what you want him to do. And this guy's over here having this problem. When you have all those distractions and all those things to try to overcome, it makes it so much harder than if everyone is just falling in line and working uh, unilaterally across the entire breadth and width of the team to improve. And then you have a chance as a team to, to play to the optimal level that you can. And I think that's what the most important thing about this is. So I think to have a, the kind of culture that we've been able to have there uh, for a long period of time, I think it's a lot easier than not. Well, and even in your position group that you coached here under, under Bill Belichick, I know you've coached special teams as well, but predominantly offensive line. When Bill was hired, he talked about, an offensive line development program. Now, you had plenty of high draft picks to work with, whether it was Logan Mankins, Matt Light, Nate Solder, Isaiah Wynn. But you had a lot of guys that weren't high draft picks that had a lot of success. I mean, third round later, Joe Tooney, Dave Andrews, Shaq Mason, Cameron Fleming, Copen, Cannon. Robinson Randall. Yeah, I mean, Ashworth. Tommy Ashworth. Brandon Gorin. Right. How how quickly do you know when you bring a guy like that in, maybe a later pick or an undrafted guy, that you have something that you can work with, both from a skill level and maybe what you're talking about culturally, attitude-wise, coachability? I think to answer that question is to tell you the three things that we covet the most and and the players that we bring in to the program relative to the offensive line. 
That's number one, they have to be smart, smart enough, okay? They don't have to be geniuses. And, uh, but there is a definite cutoff line uh, to where a guy can't just, he just can't get it. And he can't think on his feet and he's not going to get it. And he's gonna be a problem that's going to at some point come up. So, but they have to be smart enough. And we've had plenty smart guys and we've, and we've had some guys that fall below the standards that we like to have and, you know, choose from that were football smart that really played very well for us. The second thing is they got to be tough. If they're not tough, I don't think you can play up there. Um, and I often have, I remember when we've had, you know, scouts come in and say, you know, Scott's supposed to be a good player, but he's just not, you know, he's not tough, but you can make him tougher. And I just don't think you can make them tougher up there. You know, they're, you know, that old adage, if, if they're going to bite you, they're going to do it when they're a puppy. They're not going to do it when they grow up. So, you know, they got to come in, they have to be tough. And then they have to be uh, athletic enough to play the position. And maybe a lot of people would never agree with this. And, and, I, and I get it. But you don't need to have the most skilled guy in the world to be the left tackle. It helps but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And you can make some compromises if they're athletic enough to play the position. So if you're a center, you gotta be able to reach the A-gaps, okay? If you're a tackle, you have to be uh, quick enough to get out on the edge and not get run by by the edge rushers that you see in the league. And guards, they have to be physical and tough to hold up inside and keep the depth of the pocket and to move those big guys when it comes time in the run game. So, you know, those three qualities, are, we, we've never compromised on those, or if we have, it really hasn't gone very well. And, um, and we think those are important things for us. To follow up on that then, when I was reading The Blind Side, it talked about the evolution of the left tackle position and maybe how I, I thought it was Chris Dolman, but definitely Lawrence Taylor, and how they changed the importance of the left tackle position. Remember reading when the Giants were playing the 49ers, like the left tackle couldn't sleep the night before because he knew he was going to face Lawrence Taylor. Did they really change the way that position was viewed? Uh, I think that, I think it'd be, you could go way back beyond that, you know, beyond those two great players. And, you know, the guys that rush off the edge are always problematic and have always been, problematic, you know, Deacon Jones, man, no one wanted, no, you couldn't block that guy, you know, <laughs> he was so good. And, uh, and you, you, you realize, you know, well before the Lawrence Taylor era that, you know, there were gonna be some guys that you had to make special allowances for. And so, you know, I, I think that there are some parameters that you'd like to have, and we've had left tackles specifically blindside tackles that have come in all different sizes and makeups, you know, like as an example, take Matt Light, started for 10 years in the league. How long were his arms? 33 inches. How much did he weigh? You know, on a good day, 300, maybe got a little bigger than that. Or take Trent Brown, a huge person uh, not the quickest, but extremely long, 36, 37 inch arms. And those guys, you know, both were, were very, very good players at that position because they were able 
to have enough skill to play it, in some cases, extraordinary physical skill. But so it comes in all different dimensions. Isaiah's not the tallest guy in the world, but he's a really good pass blocker. He doesn't have the longest arm. So you can't just say, this is the prototype. This is what it's got to be. You know, they all can't be Nate Solders. Um, and, but you know, they, they come in different sizes. Unless you're willing to spend a huge amount of high draft choices uh, every year, or at least one high draft choice every year to take a guy to fill those positions, that's all well and good. But at some point, you're going to have to pay them all. You know, that money goes way up fast. And maybe is that the key? Uh, Dante is being adaptable. You know, you hear so much about, well, we have a system. You know, this this guy, you know, can he fit into our system? And is the key maybe here in coaching adaptability is, yeah, I'd love to have Trent Brown. We can work with Trent Brown. That's great. But you know what? We see some value in a Matt Light type too. And you, I, my guess is you couldn't find two guys more opposite than Light and Trent Brown, but they each had particular skills that, hey, we can work with this guy. This this will work. Is that the key maybe? To be flexible as opposed to locking in on just one thing. No, I think I think it is. You know, to have I think adaptability is really important and adjusting. You know, adjustability and hey, look, there's going to be times, and I remember this with all of them. You know, where you're going to have to give some guys some help on certain players, and you have to do some special things. And I remember since we started talking about Matt uh, Dwight Freedy. Every time we play the Colts, if we were playing them here. And on a grass field, you know, before we had turf and stuff like that, you know, in the old stadium, you know, it really wasn't that big a problem for Matt on Dwight. But now we get him over there now on AstroTurf, inside, loud, a lot of crowd noise, silent count. That was as hard as it got. So we had to put a tight end next to him or make sure that the back was there for him. And even with all that, when Tom would – in shotgun, he'd take the ball. He'd take a look over there and say, take a quick look and see how Matt was doing. And if Dwight didn't beat him off the snap, then, you know, he would probably do okay. But if, if Dwight got the, the drop on him and, and beat him off the snap, Tom was getting, <laughs> that, that ball was coming out fast. All right. Warp speed fast. <laughs> so, so you mentioned Freeney, and that's a good one, you know, um, to think about. It is I don't want to limit it to one. Dante, but you know, if there's one guy that you can think of when you're sitting there on Tuesday and you're going, how are we going to block this guy? You know, or if we don't account for this guy right here, he's going to wreck the game. Is oh, there yeah. is there a person or persons that come to mind that you think of when you look back at all the great defensive players that you had to scheme up against and game plan against that you go, these are the guys that kept me up at night? Yeah, I mean, there is, in, in every year on a lot of teams, I mean, not just one or two guys, to me, it, you know, there's a lot of game records out there. I mean, the, prior to uh, the Ram game in the Super Bowl, I mean, they had four guys that were really good players, you know. You know, so you got Aaron Donald. Well, you got you can't just let one guy block him all the time. So you have to push the center to that side as much as you can. There's a lot of times you can, and sometimes you can't. And when you can't, then whoever's got them has got to come through. And, uh, and, and you know, the same thing, if you're sliding to Aaron Donald, and, you know, you got Sue sitting there one-on-one -on -one with the guard, that guard's got to come through. 
and it's it, you're juggling balls all the time, especially when you're playing a really good quality defense with a lot of good players in it, where you just know that, that you know this is going to be a hard week, and and you do spend a lot of time. And you know what's amazing? Those guys that are blocking them are spending a lot of time too. They're spending a lot of time studying them uh, by themselves. Not only when we do it as a group, but by themselves looking at him and making sure, okay, this he's, oh man, his pads are up in the air. Here he comes underneath or, oh man, his pads are down. He's going to run the edge. Look out for the spin move. It's all that stuff. And, and to the credit of a lot of really good guys and a lot of good players that we've had around here, you know, they took all that to heart as certainly as much as I did and, and felt as, um, inadequate or threatened as anybody would feel getting ready to play a really good player. And there's plenty of good players in this league. Dante, you strike me as a meat and potatoes kind of coach as opposed to, you know, the bulletin board motivation type stuff. But I'm curious, since you brought up Aaron Donald and whatnot, and we go back to Super Bowl 38 when Russ Hoekstein was in the lineup and Warren Sapp talked that week about how Chris Jenkins was going to just destroy him. And Russ held up in that game, as, as you're talking about. You know, did, you, did that serve as any motivation for him, or did you guys just uh, give Russ help? How, how did he end up doing such a good job against one of the best linemen in football that game? I think he, I think he took it to heart. And, you know, we all saw what, happened, you know, what Sapp said and did. We never talked about it, you know. Maybe his friends talked to him about it, but – I thought that was really an that to me is one of the great moments in my coaching career is, uh, you know, Russ that night and the way he played and as hard as he played, but look at now, this is a, this, this kid was that type of a person. He was an all American guard at Nebraska, unrecruited walk-on. Well, I should say he was a recruited walk-on. But he, he went there without a scholarship and, you know, was there for five years and he's in their Hall of Fame. Why? Because he's Russ Hochstein. That's what his, the fiber in his heart and the fiber in his gut is. You know, he's just a tough guy. And whether he took that to heart, I don't know. But uh, all I know is that how do you come out? Uh, it's one of those incredible stories where, you know, you talk about vindication or, you know, how do you like that? Um, you know, after the game, he, he didn't say a whole lot about it. We didn't say a whole lot about it to him other than you have to feel like that kid really felt special about that night, that moment. And, um, you know, Warren Sapp's Warren Sapp. He can say whatever he wants to say. It's all true until it's different. Until you prove it different, isn't it? Yeah, it's phenomenal, Dante. You know, Brian earlier went through a pretty impressive roll call of some of the guys that you get to coach, and you can certainly hear the pride in your voice when you're talking about Hochstein and how good you feel about him. You know, is there? I don't. It's sort of like picking your kids. You don't want to have a favorite here, but you know, can, is there another person or persons, for that matter, that you can think of where you get them in camp and you go, I, I don't know. Do, do we have anything here? I, I just I don't know if I see it or not. But let's give this a shot. And you fast forward to whatever the timeline is going to be and go, you know what? I wasn't sure about this guy, but now, you know, we can put him out there and he can hold his own and he can help us win. Are there other people like Russ that you can think of that, you know, might not have had the greatest backgrounds in their life or anything like that, 
but um, you know, you're proud to have coached them, and you knew you were going to get there all every single time they stepped on the field. Yeah, I've, I've purposely um, avoided, you know, answering stuff like that. We've had plenty of guys that came here, Tom Ashworth, uh, uh, Brandon Gorn, um, Russ Holstein, who was cut by Tampa Bay, um, you know, Andrewsy, we picked up free, free agency, Mike Compton. We had plenty of guys that, you know, ended up coming here and ended up starting on some really good teams. Um, and, you know, there's been a whole lot of those guys, and we've been fortunate to have them around here and got most. Dan Conley, I mean, I, you know, cut by Jacksonville. We picked him up on the practice squad and, you know, started in a couple of Super Bowls and was a team captain his last year. I mean, how do you, how, how does that happen? But, you know, it goes back to those traits that we talked about. And then, you know, the quintessential guy of all of them, Steve Neal. I mean, how do you, I mean, here's a guy that never played college football, but was an extraordinary wrestler and a gifted athlete and very smart. But honestly, he didn't, when we got him, he was green as a gourd and we put him on defense because he could run fast. And his workout, when we brought him in for a tryout, was off the charts. And, I, and we were looking at him solely as a defensive lineman. But I went out there and watched the, the workout, and it was like, holy mackerel, look at this guy. This guy's unbelievable. And um, but that lasted about a week. And I remember, you know, we had a staff meeting, and Bill says, you know, geez, this guy's never going to get it. You know, we, we, we're wasting time. And we just said, hey, look at Let's, let's take him on offense and put him on the practice squad and see if we got anything in time. And there were plenty of times, especially earlier, where oh, man, I don't know. But uh, to his credit, and really to his credit, he really got it and, you know, became a good player for us with an extraordinary skill set. And I, I think this, you know, if, um, one thing about Steve Neal, it, never, it always gets kind of hidden, but he was as natural a pass blocker as you could ever want to be around. And so much of it was due to his wrestling background because when those big defensive linemen would come at him and grab his shoulders, they just went into Steve's world because they've been grabbing his shoulders and wrestling for his whole wrestling career. And when you try to pull this shoulder, he knew how to counter with his body and tried to get that shoulder, he would counter the other. I mean, you, you couldn't get him. And, uh, and that was his world. And he became a really good run blocker and a really good player. So speaking of, you know, kind of the, the extension of offensive line and whatnot, and, you know, you had so many guys, but you also had a quarterback who was pretty good. And I'm wondering how much – he was able to help those guys up front. You know, we sit here and we, we watch him make changes at the line of scrimmage or what we think might be changes. You know, you watch Peyton Manning. You know, you always assume maybe they're calling out protection changes other than identifying who the Mike linebacker is. How much did Tom do that at the line of scrimmage to, to maybe help protections? I think um, without getting long-winded, I can answer that very, very easily. When we played the Rams in the Super Bowl, and we had to take care of Aaron Donald at all costs, he could wreck the game if we didn't. And you saw this past weekend where he wrecked it against Seattle. Is that 
Tom took it upon his shoulders and, and I, with Josh, okay, because with the fortunate thing about that particular team was they wanted to form man rush all the time anyways, because they could get a lot of pressure with those four guys. So even though by design, our center was to go to one side and a lot of times that was not Aaron Donald's side. What Tom would do and what he did in the game was put the mic in, set, in a position that allowed the center to push to Aaron Donald's side. And if you go back and look at that game, you'll see a lot of instances where we had three on two to that side. And to the players' credit, those players that played up front and in that game you know, Shaq, Joe, and, and David Andrews in particular, because they were the guys that this affected most. If you look at that game, you will see a relationship of blockers so close and so disciplined in the way we wanted to set that protection that uh, there was hardly any room for a great player like Aaron Donald to work on one guy and frequently, a lot of times, he was getting double teamed as a result of Tom taking it upon himself and realizing, hey, look, I'm not going to get the ball, be able to throw the ball if I don't get this guy blocked. And to his credit, that's what he did. And Tom always wanted that responsibility. But you know what I found interesting on NFL Films, and it might have been the, the touchdown drive in that game, where Aaron Donald gets caught on, mic'd up on the bench saying, they, they blocked me one-on-one -on -one twice on that series, and I got to win those. So whether it was Joe or Shaq, somebody won that battle when it needed to be won. It's like we were saying before, you know, it's sometimes you just got to come through, and you, you've got to have the best technique that you've ever had. And, you, you know, you got to be in the – you got to set with the right relationship and you got to use your hands and you got to buy time. And hey, look at the greatness of Tom Brady, not only was his extraordinary skill and intelligence and all those other things, but his ability to anticipate and throw the ball on time in the rhythm that it counts, that counts for. When the ball would get held, or forced to get help because of coverage or, or whatever, you know, it's always harder. But, but for him, you know, if he, he, he'd have a pretty good idea of knowing where he wanted to go with the ball just before the ball was snapped, and that would usually be validated by what they were doing. The ball would come out, and that's frustrating the defensive lineman, you know. And, you know, you think, that, you know, cover him closer. And give me a little bit more time to get in there and get this guy. And, you know, to Tom's credit, he, he was always really sensitive to that stuff. Yeah, who was it? Was it Bosa on the Chargers? He, who He was mic'd up too, saying, he, he's, he's caught saying to Tom, man, you're getting rid of it way too quick. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I'm sure that that was the case. And, you know, I, I was just always glad that it got thrown fast. Dante, you mentioned uh, the Carolina game, and you were fortunate enough in your career to win the final game of the year six times in I five times. Five times, sorry. And I can only imagine that, you know, what that achievement is. But because of the nature of what you guys do, um, and, you know, you're always grinding, you're always on to the next game, 
you know, little little opportunity to kind of satisfy everything. But is there something where, you know, you remember a particular um, adverse situation? How are we going to do it? Are we going to get a chance this week where even after the game you could sit back for five minutes, ten minutes and say, you know what, we did it. We actually did it. Is it only the Super Bowls or was there a game that sticks out in your mind where you think, boy, I don't know. You know, I didn't know what we were going to do here, but we really – we did our jobs today, and I feel pretty good about it for even the five or ten minutes. Yeah, I think that there are. I, I think I think obviously the finality of the Super Bowl, where there's no next game until the next season, gives you the longest time to do that, no doubt. Um, you know, a game like the Kansas City game, where we beat them over there in the AFC Championship game. And, as tough a situation as you could possibly be in, you know, really a great team, a great quarterback, overtime and all that, you know, that was one of those games that um, I would think more of than others because of, you know, how hard it was. Cold, loud crowd, good team, good opponent, and, and a bunch of guys playing as good as they could play, you know, for us. And, and I'm sure they felt the same way about their guys. So, you know, I, I think that honestly, Matt, as I think back, um, games like that come to mind and um, maybe more so than others. And especially those games that quickly got forgotten because of the, um, the immediacy of getting next getting ready for the next one which is bigger than the one you just played so you know i i i've enjoyed as as i thought back on a lot of them i've enjoyed a lot of it is there so i'm going to ask you the uh, inverse of that uh are there are there games that even now in retirement that you're still sick over and are those games there are people you talk to that uh you know they get more disappointed over the loss than they were happy after the win is there one that sticks in your? Is there one or two that stick in your craw? Um, you know, I've I've let those ones go. Good for you. That's probably pretty <laughs> healthy, isn't it? And, and I'm being serious. I'm not. I'm not joking. It's really healthy. Yeah. I have so many people come up and tell me, "Geez, I'm so sorry about that 19th game," you know. And I, I, I've always told them, "Let it go." Right. I mean, we played. <laughs> we didn't play very done. good, and. Um, you know, life's moving on. I've, I've, let, I've let it go and moved on. Right, but Brian was just saying something under his breath, but I'm, I I want to take that to heart. He said, easier said than done. That is easier said than done for a lot of people. I mean, that's pretty disciplined in order to say, did my best, didn't work out, let's move on. That's not – human nature doesn't necessarily um, factor that in for a lot of people. I think that, honestly, uh, and I'm no different than a lot of other coaches – I take all those things more personally than people will ever know. You know, the losses, the tough ones, and all the rest of that. And uh, there's no doubt. I mean, I, I have. And, uh, but I let them go and, and, and just move on. And, I, yeah, I would love to have been uh, one of two part of a small part of two undefeated teams in the history of the league. But we didn't. We didn't, we didn't play our best football on account of the most. Now, you know, when we lost that game, we lost a couple more Super Bowls after that. And, of course, the Giants the second time in Philadelphia. But going into every one of those games post that game, I've always, 
you know, have always kept in my mind, and we've always harped to the players about this, play our best football when it counts the most, you know, especially when as we get into the, to the, the playoffs. Because, you know, the alternative is if you don't, you're not in the playoffs. So, or you don't win the world championship. So, you know, I think that was the mantra that we always tried to keep around here and using the past uh, as a great teaching tool. You got to play your best football when it counts the most. And especially when you win a, a playoff game against, you know, uh, the Chargers and then Kansas City and you're getting ready to play the Rams and everybody's patting you on the back and you say, hey, well, we haven't done anything yet, you know, and we got to play our best when it counts the most. And, I think that's the most important thing. That being said, Coach, I mean, I remember Teddy Bruschi saying something to me in locker room one day. Hey, those guys are on scholarship too. Yeah. How hard is it to sometimes just step back and say, you know what? Let's just give those guys credit. It wasn't that our guys played poorly. Those guys are really good too. Yeah, that, that's all true. It, it really is, Brian. You know that you have to give them credit. And I always, I always use the phrase, they're getting paid too, and. And they have good coaches, so I, I, I respect it all, and I give everyone. I, I, I just, you know, I just said, hey, look at, you know, we we've done what we've done, and people have done what they've done, and, you know, it's that's just all part of this whole life that we live. You know, and Matt had mentioned whether you get to enjoy winning, and and, and we were talking before we started this about even for us, who Matt and I have been here a long time, so. Between Super Bowl 36 and Super Bowl 53, I remember when the Patriots won Super Bowl 36, the euphoria around the offices and, and how long that lasted. And yet, it seemed like Super Bowl 53, it was win, fly home, parade Tuesday, and Wednesday you wouldn't have known that we had won the Super Bowl. It was like right back to work, and, and that's the way it was. Was that the way it was in football? Because as Bill always says, you're a month behind. Yeah, that's, that's how it is in football, you know, and you, you have a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of things to catch up on. Um, I, I was I, I was looking at it from the outside in when I was retired the first time they beat Seattle in the Super Bowl. And uh, Bill called me, you know, not long after that game and said, would you help scout because we're so far behind and we've got so much to do. And, you know, I can't put these guys on the road. Would you mind? going out and looking at an offensive line. And I sat there and I'm thinking, wait a minute, you know, we, you're going to run the same offense you just ran. <laughs> you know, we're not going to be a whole lot of things different. And you never did that when we won. And so, but at any rate, it was, you know, it just, it just to, to me, it was a, a revelation to a degree. You know, I, you know, how come all of a sudden it's so, that much harder? It really isn't so. It's like the Godfather. They sucked yeah. me back in, or whatever the line was. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> but so, but Dante, you know, you walked away um, one time, and was was that getting back on the road um, and doing those projects and everything like that? Did that give you, you know, what? Maybe I'm not done. Maybe I still have something left that I want to do. No, you know? that wasn't that wasn't it at all. You know, I didn't. Uh, it really, it really wasn't it. You know, I did it, and I was. We, you know, retired through the next season. And, um, you know, after that, then we called and we decided to do it again. And I had, you know, thank God, I had four unbelievable years here. And, 
we were talking about it last night, you know, you know, three straight Super Bowls. And, um, how are you going to do any better than that? Yeah, so now you feel like, I mean, the tank's empty, right? You did it. You, you, you got your swings in for sure, and you feel satisfied after that. I do, and um, I, you know, even now at a time when there's so much going on, so much hiring and all that, and to me, you know, you can look at it and say, boy, I, you know, I wonder, you know, do you want to coach again? And I don't. You know, I, I've had enough, and I'm fine with it. And especially what made it easy for me was watching what everybody had to go through this year. I don't, I, I don't know if I could have done it. I don't know if I could have done it. So, so speaking of doing it, um, I have a question that's kind of unrelated to you or, the, or, or really what's going on now, but Brian Dayball is the offensive coordinator in Buffalo. You coached with him for a lot of years. His name is coming up as a possible head coaching candidate now. Is that, is that something you saw in him that maybe uh, someday he would develop into a head coach? I think that uh, when you look at anybody that comes into our system like Brian did, um, you know, and you just watch him, the maturation process and grow as a person and, this, and as a coach, you know, um, and then what he did when he went to Alabama after, uh, I guess it was we, did we won that Super Bowl that he went to Alabama. It was, and um, against Atlanta, and uh, you know I was I, I was really happy for him, especially with the success he had there, and then watched him grow as a coordinator, um, you know, with other teams, and then ultimately with Buffalo. And, I'm not surprised. I think he's done a great job. He's a detailed guy. He's really a hard worker. Um, we laugh all the time uh, because when Bill would bring Josh, Nick, Brian Dable, and all these guys in, all these guys in, we would have these Josh Boyer. We would have these meetings where the coaches would interview them, and Bill would go off and do what Bill does, you know. So we were interviewing them, and we we had some of the, the biggest laughs ever listening to what these guys had to say, like Brian, you know, and he would say, "Well, I would tell." I said, "Brian, tell us about your job at, at um, um, Michigan State, you know, because that's where he was coming from, working for Saban." Right. And he said, uh, "I said, well, like, like take us through your, you know, the what you do during the game." what you do on uh, Sunday, what you do on Monday. So, well, during the game, I do this. And then I go back to the office and I do all this and, and I don't sleep that night. And the next day I work all during the day and then I work into the night and I don't sleep that night. And I, and I, I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You're 48 hours and you're not sleeping yet. Oh no, no, I can't. I got too much stuff to do. And, you know, his was like, that's just one example of so many things that these guys would say. And you just say, oh, well, like, right, Brian, hey, Brian, how much you think you're going to get paid here? And he, and he goes, oh, I did all my research on it. I think about 70 or 80,000. And we would just guffaw <laughs> laughing at that one. So do you know what 2020 is? <laughs> no, what's that? It's 20,000 a year and 20 hours a day. Have a great day. <laughs> well, and, he, and he would see the worst look on his face like, but I thought it was going to be like 75000 No, it ain't going to be 75000 It's a hell of a lot of, less than that. But 
all those kids, to their credit, Josh and Nick and everybody that's come in in that role, you know, they've all learned their strikes and they've all, they're all getting what they deserve. And, and Brian's going to get one of these jobs, no doubt. And my greatest wish for him is that he goes into that job and, and is Brian Babel, you know, and not Nick Saban or Bill Belichick. Just be yourself. Whatever it is that's good enough to get you to this point, be that. Because, you know, that's who you are. And, you know, try to do it. Trying to be somebody else. I don't know. Dante, is it amazing how many people want to be part of the 2020 club? Like, like if you talk to most, and I use the word in quotation marks, normal people on the street, they'd laugh just like you did. But are you amazed that there are so many young people that say, 2020, sign me up for it? Sure. I'm, I'm not surprised. I think guys will. Here's the thing. Guys are certainly willing to come in. In, in that regard, but there's not many of them that are patient enough to to wade through the whole thing for what it takes to move up the chain, and um, and and those that are patient and those that are in, work hard every day to be better and not look for their next opportunity, and those are the guys that are going to you know hang around and and reap the benefits of all that where guys they're impatient and they leave and they're just moving on to something else those guys you know they're gone dante my final question for you is in retirement um do you still look to say stay connected with the game at all like what's your relationship with maybe with your former players do you still communicate and keep a connection to the game I know you, know, you do. I, really I, know, I, I know you've done some football for you with Pete Brock and the alumni. Is that is that a way to do it, or? I don't. If it is, it's only because people have sought me out and said, "Hey, do you mind doing this?" Like this thing today, you know. I mean, that's this is nice, and I enjoy it, and all the rest of it. But connected to the game, no. You know, I watch the games on TV, not in totality and not religiously. Um, you know, I, like I watched the championship game the other night with Alabama and Ohio State because I just I really like those guys there. I know those guys, Steve Sarkeesian and and, uh, and some of their assistant coaches. And I just, you know, I, I really wanted to see them do well. And um, but that's the extent of it. You know, I don't I, I don't have any desire to, you know, keep up to date. I'm not taking notes on what I'm watching, believe me. So meaning you did it. Right, you did it. You had your time, and it was great. Yeah. But yeah. it's time to do something else. Is that fair? I think that's really fair, and I think it's really accurate. You know, look at if I wanted to get back into coaching, I suppose I could, but I'm not moving. I'm, I'm not doing what it takes to do that. And um, I'm seven. I'm going to be seventy-three in less than a month. I don't buy it. That's enough. I don't buy it. I don't either because I used to watch you running sprints on the practice field. How about how about Dante sprints versus Steve Neal? Like that's just a mismatch, isn't it? Uh, yeah. No, it isn't. I catch his uh, breeze as he blow by me every time. Last one for me, Dante is just I, I think. Are you in a position now again? Um, when you're grinding every single day. By the way, before I ask that, did, were you responsible for making the coffee? Were you the first one uh, in? I you know I did. Are you any good? Are you any good at it? And what would your wife? What would your wife say if I asked her that question? 
I make the coffee here. And what would she say? She sounded good at it. Okay. How hard can it be? Okay. Take this pack, open it up, put it in there, and let's go. That's a big responsibility, though, for people 4, 30, 5 o'clock in the morning. They need a job, well, so you better not screw that one up. Because I, I couldn't get going unless I did it. And, uh, and I, I always did that. I did it for before all the cafeteria workers would come in. I would get it all set up for them, have four pots ready for everybody. That's awesome. But... The fact that you can sit back and, and have some perspective, and now that you have done it, done it, do you do you pinch yourself a little bit, Dante, and say, you know, and look back at what this team was able to accomplish for all that time and say, you know what, I was a part of that, and that was really special. And um, are you able to appreciate it now that you're outside of it? Yes, I am. And I, and I do – I do revel in the, in the experience and I, you know, I'm so grateful for all the people that I've been able to coach, all the really good players, really good people that I've been able to coach and work with. And I just think it's um, something that I was, I, and I don't know why, that I've been blessed to be part of. And um, I mean, you're going to look back at it and probably say, how did, how how are you so lucky? How are you so fortunate? And uh, that's how I feel about it. And and that's not fake humility. It's just how I feel about it. And I'm grateful for every second of it. Hope you enjoy every single minute of retirement. You're missed around here, but continued success in retirement. Have fun with your grandkids. Do a great job teaching. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, guys. And good luck. And, uh, you know, we'll be watching and seeing how everything goes. And Patriot for life, man. Thank you for downloading this podcast. Subscribe on Apple, Google Play, and everywhere else you listen. Like the show? Please rate and review us. Listener comments and ratings help keep us high in the podcast rankings so new listeners can find us. Be sure to check patriots.com for more news and more podcasts.